Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 9, How Tesla Eventually Got His Groove Back, 1885 to 1887. Last time was our blockbuster episode on the history of the Gilded Age. I hope you found this era as interesting as I did. This week, though, we're back to Tesla himself. We left off with his bitter departure from the Edison machine works after a broken, but possibly joking, promise of a massive bonus for his work there. But the good news for Tesla is that it wasn't long at all before opportunity came knocking for him again as would further betrayal and disappointment in the harsh face of Gilded Age capitalism, before opportunity, seemingly circling around Tesla's neighborhood looking for somewhere to park its car, knocked on Tesla's door for a third time. That time it would stick, and Tesla was finally on his way to becoming the figure we all know him to be today. We left Tesla last time scrawling in his notebook at the start of 1885 so we'll pick up our story there. In January 1885, the first successful appendectomy is performed by Dr. William W. Grant. American inventor Lamarcus Adna Thompson patents the roller coaster, and Irish terrorists damage Westminster Hall and the Tower of London with dynamite. In February, Charles Dow publishes the first edition of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The original index stood at a level of 62.76 and represented the dollar average of 14 stocks, 12 of which were railroads. Reaching an early peak of 78.38 during the summer of 1890, the Dow ended up hitting its all-time low of 28.48 in the summer of 1896 during the depths of what later became known as the Panic of 1896. As of this recording in early February 2018, the Dow Jones has taken quite a beating in trading this week, but still stands at over 24,000 points today. Also in February, just before the end of his term, U.S. President Chester A. Arthur dedicates the Washington Monument. And the month concludes without having a full moon. While strangely creepy, this apparently happens about four times a century. In fact, we will have no full moon in February this year. And that's your fun fact for today. In March, there is a full moon. Also in March, a subsidiary of the American Bell Telephone Company, American Telephone and Telegraph, better known as AT&T, is incorporated in New York. Grover Cleveland is sworn in as the 22nd President of the United States. My favorite Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera, The Mikado, premieres at the Savoy Theatre in London. Also in England, the first legal cremation is performed by the Cremation Society at Woking, Surrey. The Prussian government, motivated by Chancellor of the German Empire Otto von Bismarck, expels all ethnic Poles and Jews without German citizenship from Prussia. In Canada, the Northwest Rebellion begins with the Battle of Duck Lake, led by the Métis people under Louis Riel. A short-lived rebellion, in May 1885 at the Battle of Batoche, Canadian government forces inflicted a decisive defeat on the Métis, and Riel was captured. 
By June, Canadian troops also put down resistance by the Cree and Assiniboine First Nations, who had joined the rebellion. Riel was tried and convicted of treason in July, and was hanged in November. Those of you listening outside Canada, Louis Riel is a deeply fascinating character from our history, as are the two rebellions he led against the Canadian government. The Northwest Rebellion was his second. I am not yet 40 years old, but I am old enough to remember in grade 7 history being taught about Riel and the uprising, and how he was a traitor and a villain. In fact, my grade 7 teacher told us a story about his grandfather, as a young man, getting on a train in Ontario and riding for several days out to Saskatchewan in order to personally watch Riel's hanging. And then, over the summer, everything changed. In grade 8, we learned how Riel was actually a hero and martyr for the cause of the Métis people, and how he should rightly be considered a founding father of Manitoba. It shows you something of the mutability of historical inquiry. In fact, remaining a contentious figure in Canadian politics, since the early 1990s, about when the switch happened in my elementary school history curriculum, there have been more than a dozen bills proposed in Parliament, though none have yet passed, to void Riel's treason conviction and to establish July 15th as Louis Riel Day. In April, Gottlieb Daimler is granted a German patent for his single-cylinder water-cooled engine design. This same year, Carl Benz produces the Benz patent Motorwagen, regarded as the first automobile, although it didn't actually debut until 1886. Many years later, in 1926, the companies founded by these two men would unite to form Daimler-Benz AG, manufacturer of motor vehicles, and internal combustion engines. In May, Good Housekeeping magazine goes on sale for the first time in the United States. In June, the Statue of Liberty arrives in New York Harbor, some assembly required. In July, Louis Pasteur and Emile Roux successfully test their rabies vaccine on Joseph Meester, a boy who was bitten by a rabid dog and who would previously have suffered a gruesome and agonizing death. Also in July, Sarah E. Good is the first African-American woman to apply for and receive a patent for the invention of the hideaway bed. In August, S. Andromedae is discovered by astronomers. It is the only known supernova in the Andromeda galaxy, and was the first ever noted outside the Milky Way. Also in August, Gottlieb Daimler, remember him, is granted another German patent, this time for the Daimler Reitwagen, regarded as the first motorcycle. Wow, big year for German automotive engineering. In September, in Rock Springs, Wyoming, 150 white miners attack their Chinese co-workers, killing 28, wounding 15, and forcing several hundred more out of town. Remember last episode when we talked about the violence that immigrant workers faced in the Gilded Age? In November, back in Canada, construction on the Canadian Pacific Railway ends in Kregaliki, British Columbia driving of the last spike. With its completion, a railway now extends across the entire length of Canada. On December the 1st, one of the most important events in human history occurs. Dr. Pepper is served for the first time. Also in 1885, the home insurance building in Chicago, designed by William LeBaron Jenny, is completed. As we mentioned in our last episode, With ten floors and a fireproof, weight-bearing steel frame, it is regarded as the first skyscraper. John Kemp Starley demonstrates the Rover safety bicycle 
regarded as the first practical modern bicycle. And within months, bicycle playing cards are first produced, which is really quick turnaround if you think about it. Famous births in 1885 include, in February, Sinclair Lewis, American writer and Nobel Prize laureate, Bess Truman, future First Lady of the United States. Because I'm obsessed with The Crown on Netflix, I should also mention the birth of Princess Alice of Battenberg, future mother of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, and mother-in-law of Queen Elizabeth II. And Chester William Nimitz Sr., Fleet Admiral of the United States Navy and Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet during World War II. A leading authority on submarines, he oversaw the conversion of the U.S. subfleet from gasoline to diesel, and then later was key in the approval to build the world's first nuclear-powered submarine, USS Nautilus. When he died in 1966, he was the last surviving officer who served in the U.S. Navy at the rank of Fleet Admiral. In his honor, a fleet of 10 Nimitz-class nuclear-powered super-aircraft carriers were built, including the USS Nimitz, the first of her class, which was commissioned in 1975 and remains in service today. In April, Walter Schweiger was born. He was a German U-boat commander of U-20, which sank the Lusitania and helped bring the United States into World War I. Louis B. Mayer, American film producer, was born in July. Also born in July 1885 were Anne Jemima Flower of the Netherlands and Lo Mijen of China. Both women are notable as super centenarians, people who live to be well over 100 years old. Anne Jemima Flower died in 1995 at the age of 110, while Lu Mijen died in 2013, which would have made her 128 years old. Her claim is supported by the Gerontological Society of China, but hasn't gained widespread acceptance elsewhere due to the lack of reliable birth records from her home province back in 1885. All of her documents were created later, citing 1885 as her birth year. However, she was from a place called Bama County, a region apparently noted for longevity, recording 31.7 supercentenarians per 100,000 people as of the 2011 census. Lowe was illiterate and worked as a farmer and housewife throughout her life. She was described as a nice but stubborn woman. And, well, you'd have to be pretty stubborn to make it to 128, I would guess. In September... English novelist D.H. Lawrence and American poet Ezra Pound are born. In October, Niels Bohr is born. A Danish physicist and Nobel laureate, he made foundational contributions to our understanding of atomic structure and quantum theory. Also born in October is Raymond Elmer DeWalt, an American inventor and entrepreneur who invented the radial arm saw in 1922. In 1924, he founded DeWalt Products Company in Leola, Pennsylvania, to manufacture and sell his saw, and then later other tools, all branded with their distinctive yellow and black color scheme. In November, George Patton, an American general, is born, or reborn, if you believe, as he did, that he was reincarnated. Famous deaths in 1885 include Queen Emma of Hawaii, Robert Emmett Odlum, an American swimming instructor, and the first man to die from jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge, although not as a suicide. Odlum, ironically interested in safety and life-saving, 
jumped to demonstrate that people did not die simply from falling through the air, thus encouraging people to be willing to jump from a burning building into a fireman's net. Other deaths include French author Victor Hugo and Ulysses S. Grant, American Civil War general and 18th President of the United States. Broke after some bad business deals and dying of throat cancer, Grant spent his last months furiously writing his memoirs, hoping they would sell so that his family had money to support themselves once he was gone. Mark Twain offered to publish the book with a sweetheart deal that gave Grant 75% of the royalties. 10% was, and is, a typical author's royalty. Grant finished his memoirs and died a few days later. The book was a bestseller netting Grant's widow about $450,000 in royalties, equivalent to about $11 million today. It is, to this day, widely considered a masterpiece of American nonfiction. In September, Jumbo, an African elephant, and a star attraction in P.T. Barnum's circus, is killed in a train accident at St. Thomas, Ontario. The giant elephant's name had spawned the common word Jumbo, meaning large in size, and to this day remains the Tufts University mascot. Also in September, Dr. Emmett Brown is killed in Hill Valley, California, shot in the back by Buford Tannen over a matter of $80. Bitter and angry though he might have been, the six months Tesla spent in the company of Edison hadn't been wasted. They allowed Tesla to observe how Edison and Batchelor ran Edison's operation and his businesses. And, as mentioned, Tesla had begun to sketch out ideas for his own company in his notebook, as well as plans for arc lighting design, possibly based on his now-shelved arc light system for Edison, as well as on the construction of DC commutators. Mark Seifer, in his Tesla biography, Wizard, also suggests one other benefit of the time spent in Edison's employ. Tesla got to see up close how the Wizard of Menlo Park was a mortal and fallible man, and not the Olympian of science that public opinion viewed him as, thanks in no small part to Edison's own public relations efforts. Edison screwed up. He made mistakes. He and his employees went down a lot of blind alleys in their quests for innovation. It didn't all spring fully formed from Edison's mind. And allowing oneself permission to fail, to know and accept that it's going to happen and that it's okay, and that it's something to learn from and not to fear, is an incredibly liberating realization. As we've already seen in this series, despite Tesla's later boastful claims that he envisioned a device, built it, and it worked just the way he'd planned the first time every time, there was a lot of trial and error in Tesla's process of invention. Knowing that Edison was no different, and with his own certainty that his alternating current plans were superior to DC power, this must have been freeing for Tesla, as he struck out on his own to try and make his way as an independent inventor. Once again, at this point, our sources conflict as to timeline and order of events, in relatively short order, three men came into Tesla's life who would have a big impact on the next stage of his career. Lemuel Sorel, Benjamin Vale, and Robert Lane. Sorel was a patent lawyer who had done work for Edison, 
while Vale and Lane were businessmen eager to enter the exciting new field of electricity. Depending on which source you read, Tesla was either approached by Vale and Lane first, possibly as early as December 1884, just as he was quitting the Edison works, or he met them in early 1885 through Sorel. Either way, by early 1885, the group had organized and begun to capitalize the Tesla Electric Light and Manufacturing Company in Vale's hometown of Rahway. A place called New Jersey. It was the first company of any kind to bear Tesla's name. Although the company could issue stock for up to $300,000, it began with Vale subscribing $1,000 and another $4,000 from other investors. From Vale and Lane, Tesla received vague assurances that they were interested in the AC motor, but the company's first project was to be arc lighting, the fastest growing segment of the electrical industry in the 1880s, with the number of installations doubling every year between 1881 and 1885. While the industry was dominated by the Brush and Thompson-Houston companies, there were any number of small startup companies looking for their piece of the pie. By 1886, there were at least 40 firms manufacturing arc lighting systems. In May 1885, Tesla arranged an appointment with Lemuel Sorrell, Edison's chief patent attorney in New York, to file patent claims covering improvements in generators, arc lamps, and regulators. Sorrell taught Tesla how to break down complex inventions into individual improvements, and on the 30th of that month, they applied for Tesla's first patent, number 335786, an improved design of the arc lamp, which created a uniform light and prevented flickering. In May and June, they applied for other patents on improvements to commutators for the prevention of sparking and for regulating the current by means of a novel independent circuit coupled with auxiliary brushes. In July, they filed a patent that enabled exhausted lamps to automatically separate themselves from the circuit until their carbon filaments could be replaced. Unfortunately, the design had been anticipated by Elihu Thompson. Although embarrassed by being unaware of the state of the art in America, Tesla was able to create novel refinements, and they were patentable. While working on these patent applications, Tesla was paid $150 a month, with the bulk of his compensation coming in the form of stock in the company. Through 1885, Tesla worked to both manufacture his system and run it from a central station. Tesla was probably assisted by a young man, Paul Noyes, whom he recruited from the Gordon Press Works in Rahway. With Noyes' help, by 1886 the new Tesla Arclight system, his first and only municipal Arclight system, was being used in Rahway to light some of the town's streets and several factories. The company, and the original approach of the system, received favorable notice from the New York trade journal Electrical Review, which published a front-page feature about the Tesla system in August 1886. In return, the Tesla company ran advertisements in Electrical Review announcing, quote, the most perfect automatic self-regulating system of electric arc light yet produced. In a display ad four times the size of most other electrical concerns, the Tesla system guaranteed, quote, absolute safety and great saving of power, with no flickering or hissing. With a steady salary and stock in the company that bore his name, Tesla once again began to indulge his love of the finer things in life. He moved into a garden apartment in Manhattan, decorating the grounds, quote, 
in the continental fashion with colored glass balls on sticks. Unfortunately, New York has always been a rough town for colored glass balls on sticks, and Tesla's garden kept being burgled by local Utes. Did you say Utes? Yeah, two Utes. What is a Ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two Utes. Tesla had to order his gardener, now that he had one, to bring them in every night. But his newfound luxury wasn't to last. For the second time in as many years, Tesla was on the receiving end of the sharp elbows of American capitalism in the Gilded Age. As the patents for his arc lighting system were granted, Tesla assigned them to the Tesla Electric Light and Manufacturing Company in return for stock shares. Unfortunately, neither of his business partners cared much about Tesla's AC inventions, feeling that the AC motor was useless. Tesla naturally was upset. He had, after all, postponed work on his AC system until the Rahway Arclight project was complete, on the understanding that the company would then turn to AC systems. Once the Arc system was complete, however, Vale and Lane abandoned Tesla, and, by some manipulations Tesla didn't understand, pushed him out of the company. Vale and Lane shuttered the Tesla Electric Light and Manufacturing Company, and created a new firm, the Union County Electric Light and Manufacturing Company, taking all of Tesla's patents with them. Abandoning the manufacturing side of the arc lighting industry, Vale and Lane chose to concentrate on operating as a lighting company for Rahway and the surrounding county. Tesla's role as inventor was thus superfluous. They had what they needed from him. Having assigned the patents to the company, Tesla was left in a position where he could no longer use his own inventions. All he had to show for his efforts in Rahway was, quote, a beautifully engraved certificate of stock of hypothetical value. He called this the hardest blow I ever received. In the midst of hardship, Tesla filed one last patent application in March 1886 for a thermomagnetic motor. Actually, it was for the basic principle of the motor, along with seven variations. Because why not show off a bit, right? Something that Edison was also experimenting on, but which to that point had resulted only in some blown-out windows after an accident, the thermodynamic motor used the loss of magnetism in iron at temperatures above 750 degrees Celsius for transforming heat directly into mechanical or electrical energy. Ousted from his own company, this was a patent Tesla himself could keep, at least. Little did he know that it would prove the lifeline he'd need to get his career jump-started again. Before that, however, came the wilderness. For essentially a year, from the spring of 1886 through the spring of 1887, Tesla was without steady work. He was unable to find employment as an engineer or inventor, and after several odd jobs repairing electrical equipment, he was reduced to working as a day laborer, digging ditches. And even for this work, Tesla found there to be stiff competition. As you'll recall from the last episode, when we talked about the seemingly inexhaustible supply of cheap, unskilled labor to be had from among recent arrivals in New York City. In later years, Tesla would rarely speak of this time. It was simply too painful and humiliating. He glosses over the episode in his autobiography, in which his only reference describes this time as, quote, a period of struggle in the new medium for which I was not fitted. 
O'Neill gives more detail of Tesla's feelings about this period, and in letters from the 1930s, Tesla himself reflected on the experience. I lived, he said, through a year of terrible heartaches and bitter tears, my suffering being intensified by material want. By this point, Tesla was something of a self-perceived aristocrat, and he resented menial labor, and he resented the waste of his abilities most of all. My high education in various branches of science, mechanics, and literature were a mockery, he added. Tesla's luck finally changed in April 1887, after his long winter of discontent. At some point while digging ditches, Tesla struck up a conversation with the foreman who had hired him, and eventually the topic turned to Tesla's efforts at invention. More than a little part of me thinks it was probably impossible to get Tesla to stop telling people about how his life used to be. Anyway, something he said struck a chord in the foreman, who introduced Tesla to Alfred S. Brown, a man who Tesla's boss thought might be interested in what the inventor had to say about alternating current. Alfred S. Brown had worked in the telegraph industry since 1855, working his way up to the position of superintendent of Western Union's New York Metropolitan District. Regarded as a, quote, first-class electrician, he held a number of patents of his own on arc lamps, and an expert in underground telegraph work, Brown was responsible for supervising the installation of the cables connecting Western Union's main office to the stock and commodity exchanges in downtown Manhattan. And this is likely how a foreman supervising ditch digging for underground cables met Brown and could thus make an introduction for Tesla. Brown had probably seen the article and advertisements on Tesla in Electrical Review the year before. Well aware of the limitations of direct current apparatus, he was immediately impressed with the merits of Tesla's AC inventions. Based on his Western Union experience, Brown knew how companies and individuals could use inventions to dramatically reshape an industry. As a senior Western Union manager, Brown had personally watched Edison demonstrate several of his breakthrough inventions, including his duplex telegraph, his quadruplex telegraph, and an improved telephone. Where Edison had failed to see the value and future of alternating current, Brown correctly saw the shape of things to come. He understood the opportunity with Tesla's thermomagnetic motor, but he knew he would need help to turn this invention into a commercial proposition. Brown turned to Charles F. Peck, a lawyer from Inglewood, New Jersey, who had helped organize the Mutual Union Telegraph Company in 1880, which provided secure, dedicated telegraph lines to banks and financial businesses. Peck had already made his fortune when, rather than continue trying to compete against them, Western Union leased Mutual Union's private lines. Having seen Peck's business savvy up close during the legal battles that preceded the lease agreement, Brown knew that this was the man to help he and Tesla develop the inventor's ideas into practical commercial products. However, according to later stories Tesla would tell, Peck was ambivalent about getting involved in AC power. Peck, quote, knew of the failures in the industrial exploitation of alternating currents and was skeptical of even taking a meeting to discuss Tesla's ideas or witness any tests. In an article published in the March 1919 issue of The Electrical Experimenter, publisher Hugo Gernsback, who would later become a big name in the science fiction publishing world, and even have the World Science Fiction Society's annual prize, the Hugo Award, named after him, 
recounted Tesla's recollection of events. I paraphrase them here, but will include a link to the original article in this week's show notes. Do you know the story of the egg of Columbus? Tesla asked Peck. The story goes that Columbus, who was trying to get an audience with Isabella, Queen of Spain, to propose his voyage west, was at some fancy dinner at court, and in an effort to prove to the attendees, who were skeptical of the sailor's plan, that he could do anything, Columbus bet them that while they couldn't balance an egg on its end, he could. Guests tried and tried, but were unable to balance the egg. So Columbus took it, cracked the shell slightly at one end with a gentle tap, and made the egg stand upright. This may be a myth, but the fact is that Columbus was granted an audience with Isabella, and she did end up pawning her jewels to equip his ships for the voyage. Peck knew the story, so Tesla offered to balance an egg, but without cracking the shell. If I should do this, would you admit that I had gone Columbus one better? Tesla asked. Peck agreed he would. And would you be willing to go out of your way as much as Isabella? Tesla asked. I have no crown jewels to pawn, Peck replied, but I might be able to help you to an extent. Tesla arranged for a demonstration the following day. Tesla sold some personal items, including apparently a portrait of George Washington, to buy the parts he needed. On a tabletop, he built a circular enclosure with polyphase circuits along the perimeter to generate a rotating magnetic field. When Peck arrived the next day, Tesla placed a metal egg at the center of the ring. When he turned on the current, the egg began to spin. As the egg's speed of rotation increased, its wobbling stopped and it stood up on end. Peck was astounded. How much money do you need? he asked. This episode was a forerunner of Tesla's later incredible public and private demonstrations, and probably taught him a lesson, that to effectively communicate the power and potential of his inventions, a certain degree of showmanship would be needed. People don't invest in inventions built out of tin cans, they invest in projects that capture their imagination. You have to draw them in. Once he'd done that, Tesla could then get Peck and Brown to think about the commercial potential of his motor. In April 1887, the Tesla Electric Company was officially organized. In his agreement with Peck and Brown, Tesla promised to develop several different inventions, not just the AC motor that he had always been dreaming about. Consequently, Tesla initially set to work on the problems caused by commutators in motors and dynamos. He had been thinking about commutators for years, and though he preferred eliminating them altogether, he nonetheless came up with several improvements, including an AC motor with a short-circuiting commutator and a dynamo commutator that reduced sparking. Peck, who had connections with John C. Moore and J.P. Morgan, provided the bulk of the capital for the new company, and Brown provided technical expertise, as well as locating a laboratory at 89 Liberty Street, just around the corner from the offices of Peck's Mutual Union and half a block east of the southeastern corner of what would become the grounds of the World Trade Center. Tesla occupied a room upstairs. The lab was furnished simply with a workbench, a stove, and a dynamo manufactured by Edward Weston. To provide power for the dynamo, Peck and Brown struck a deal with the Globe Stationery and Printing Company, who occupied the ground floor. Because Globe used its steam engine to run the presses during the day, Tesla was free to use it at night. 
As a result, Tesla got into the habit of working on his inventions at night. The motors I built there were exactly as I had imagined them, Tesla wrote in his autobiography. I made no attempt to improve the design, but merely reproduced the pictures as they appeared to my vision, and the operation was always as I expected. While this might be some later Tesla myth-making, it is true that at this point Tesla began an unbroken stretch of invention. Within the first five years, he applied for and was granted a total of 40 patents. It was a period of intense activity, which would continue for the next 15 years. Brown and Peck knew how to exploit technological innovation, how to create companies, and how to promote new technology. Peck and Brown identified for Tesla key opportunities in the electrical industry, and they positioned his invention so as to receive significant publicity and financial reward. Tesla held both men in high regard, noting that, quote, they were in all their dealings with me the finest and noblest characters I have ever met in my life. In return for facilities and a monthly salary of $250, Tesla agreed to split his patents on a 50-50 basis, having apparently learned something from his previous experience. They also agreed to share any profits, with Tesla receiving a third, Peck and Brown splitting a third, and a third to be reinvested to develop future inventions. In actuality, the three equally shared one patent for an AC dynamo, while Peck and Tesla split five more patents on commutators, motors, and power transmission, and the balance of inventions conceived during the period were placed in the name of the Tesla Electric Company. Their first patent was filed on April 30, 1887. Finally, Tesla had arrived. As if making up for lost time, Tesla worked with a fury that shocked his new partners. He routinely drove himself until he collapsed, working with little sleep and few breaks. Quote, Tesla produced in rapid succession three complete systems of AC machinery, for single-phase, two-phase, and three-phase currents, and made experiments with four- and six-phase currents. In each of the three systems, he produced the dynamos for generating the currents, the motors for producing power from them, and transformers for raising and reducing the voltages, as well as a variety of automatic controllers. He also calculated the mathematics behind all these inventions. On May 10th, Tesla's old friend and assistant Anthony Zaghetti landed in New York, and by the end of the week, he was working at Liberty Street. With Tesla as designer, Brown as technical expert, and Zaghetti as assistant, they began manufacturing their first AC induction motors. Peck, who along with Brown would be associated with Tesla for the next decade as a quiet backer, sought investors in California, Pennsylvania, and New York. While Tesla filed a patent for the dynamo commutator, Peck and Brown were far more interested by his ideas about converting the heat from burning coal directly into electricity using his thermomagnetic motor. Well aware of the growing demand in American industry for cheap power, Peck and Brown were drawn to the simplicity of converting heat from burning coal directly into electricity. It lacked all the cost and complexity of steam engines and dynamos. To generate electricity in the 1880s, or even today, one had to burn coal, which heated a boiler and produced steam. The steam was then used by an engine that turned a dynamo. At each step in this system, energy was lost as waste heat or friction. 
If you could just skip all those intermediate steps and go straight from burning coal to generating electricity, then you would have an invention even more revolutionary than the dynamo. Tesla had some early success with his prototype. Since heating and cooling would induce currents moving in opposite directions, Tesla's pyromagnetic generator produced alternating current. He regarded it as, quote, a great invention, and worked on it from the fall of 1886 to the late summer of 1887. But he encountered problems in getting a sufficient temperature differential between heating and cooling. In order to generate a significant amount of electricity, the temperature of the core would have to rise and fall dramatically. If the core retained latent heat, then little electricity would be generated. Tesla did apply for a patent for this invention, but it wasn't granted. At this point, not able to perfect his invention, Tesla feared that Peck and Brown might abandon him just as Vale and Lane had done. However, Peck had confidence in Tesla and instead encouraged him to keep inventing. As it became clear that the pyromagnetic generator wasn't going to work, Tesla recalled, quote, I met Mr. Peck just at the door of the building in which he had his office, and he spoke to me in a very kind way and said, Now do not be discouraged that this great invention of yours is not panning out right. You may bring it to a success after all. Perhaps it would be good if you would switch to some other of your ideas and drop this for a while. I have had an experience that this is a very good plan. I came back encouraged. Taking Peck's advice, Tesla now returned to the idea that had come to him in Budapest five years earlier, a motor with a rotating magnetic field. The first step was testing his hunch that several alternating currents could produce a rotating magnetic field. He had thought a great deal about how several alternating currents might be combined, but he had never tried it in practice. Tesla began by modifying the Weston DC dynamo in the lab so that it could produce two, three, or four separate alternating currents. Tesla had the AC generator deliver two separate currents to coils on opposite sides of the motor's stator, Remember, that's a ring-shaped element of the motor. For the motor's rotor, he balanced a shoe-polished tin on a pin in the center of the ring, and to his delight, the rotating magnetic field caused the can to spin. With this motor, Tesla had finally figured out how to combine alternating currents to create a rotating magnetic field in the motor's stator. Now understanding the importance of having the currents out of phase, Tesla could build a full-scale electric motor using the rotating magnetic field he had envisioned in Budapest. Thrilled with his breakthrough motor, Tesla invited Brown, his technically-minded patron, to come and see a demonstration in the late summer of 1887. But Brown watched the tin can spin in this prototype and thought, so what? Wasn't this just the egg of Columbus all over again? Tesla now faced the challenge of convincing his patrons that his rotating magnetic field could be used as the basis of a practical commercial AC motor. Why should they put money into a spinning tin can? While it may seem obvious to us to develop an AC motor, that wasn't the case with electrical experts in 1887. To understand why, we need to discuss the situation in the electrical industry in the mid-1880s. But that will have to wait until next time. Thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link to the show on your social media. 
I hope you'll go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more chance people who might not otherwise encounter the show will see it and subscribe. Thanks for your help. Past episodes, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list with updates and alerts about the show, links to articles, and other stuff related to Tesla, his life, and time. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at katowich.com or on Twitter with the handle at Our Man Kato. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowich.